Radio Mano Papachango. and gentlemen i'm still sitting by this river in uh, idaho the payette river this is uh michael veneziano veneziano i think is how you pronounce it this dude is awesome uh he reached out to me about i don't know six months ago or something maybe longer he listens to the podcast and uh, he heard me talking about the shit i was gonna I was planning to do in Colorado, the lifeboat, and he, it's a lot like Oliver, similar story, he reached out and he said, hey, you don't know me, but I like what you're doing, and I'd like to help, Uh, I own a uh, lumber mill in Oakland, California, and I've got a lot of wood. And uh, if you guys could use some uh, some wood down there in Colorado, we can talk about getting it on a truck and getting it down there to you. And uh, he's a, an arborist. He's been working with trees since he was in high school. And um, he was the, the head of uh, parks and recreation for Berkeley, California for a time. And uh, he had a business that would you know if a tree was about to fall on your house or it was obstructing power lines or whatever this company comes in takes the tree out and um and then he could do whatever he wants with the wood and a lot of these trees are probably not particularly useful um but they were all just going to a a facility that uh, burned them for you know power or or chipped them for mulch or whatever and some of the trees are awesome and uh why not give them another life as a as a beam as a bar as a table um so check out ponderosa millworks um <laughs> michael and i realized after having this conversation we realized we didn't even talk about his business we talked about all this other stuff all the the other businesses in this amazing space uh that he works at o2 uh, which is this city block in Oakland with all these different, well, you'll hear us talk about it in the podcast. But anyway, we didn't talk about his business, which is, you know, one of the anchor businesses in this this organism uh, that we uh, discuss. And he makes the most amazing, beautiful, if you like wood, if you like trees, if you like to see grain and time and life expressed in this, designed by nature uh check out ponderosa millworks they do awesome stuff they meaning michael and and whoever he's working with um at the time um anyway awesome dude reached out out of nowhere offered us this wood talked on the phone turns out um he and his wife are, are just really cool people so we stopped on our trip in oakland and uh 
got to know them a little bit, not too much, just stayed a night there, um, hung out with them, had dinner, actually met Michael's mother, which was a real treat. Uh, as you can imagine, when you get to know Michael a little bit, uh, you'll see that uh, a guy like that is going to have an interesting mother, and he certainly does. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's what's going on. I'm sitting by this river. Uh, this is going to come out. I just recorded the intro to the last episode with Kyle Kingsbury, so I'm going to this one's going to release a couple days later, so it'll probably be uh, Friday or Saturday when this one comes out. Um, but I'm going to go take advantage of some Wi-Fi down the road in Lomen, Utah. I hear there's a burger joint down there with Wi-Fi, so we'll go do a little burgers and podcast uploading. I uh, The other day I was looking for something. Somebody was asking me for an episode... I forget what it was, but somebody wrote to me like, hey, what was that episode where you interviewed so-and-so? So I, I just did a search, you know, tangentially speaking, and, and I don't remember what the keyword was in addition that I used. Anyway, I clicked on some podcast app. There was like a, a link to it. I clicked on it, and there were all these reviews of this podcast. Um that I'd never read. I mean, I don't go looking for reviews. I, I see the reviews on iTunes sometimes. Um, but uh, I guess each app also has a place to leave reviews. I think this was Pod Bay, maybe. I don't remember. Anyway, it's always strange to read reviews of, of oneself, you know, um, <clears throat> And, but it's also, I got used to it with Sex at Dawn. I got used to people reacting to the book um, negatively, positively. I tried to keep a distance from it and understand that they're, you know, responding to something I did, not me. And so if there's, if it's a negative kind of response, well, that's all right. It's, you know, not everyone loves every song or every book or every work of art or every mountain or whatever. Everybody's got different opinions. But it was weird reading these because these reviews were much more personal. It was more about me as a person. Um, you know, it's about the podcast, but it's about like this guy, you know, this guy's full of shit. This guy, you know, th there were far more positive ones than negative ones. And thank you for that. Um, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm whining. I'm not whining. I'm not angry. I'm not accused. I just, it was weird to read people saying things like, uh, you know, this guy's so fucking full of himself. He used to be cool and now he's like really arrogant or, um, you know, he, you know, tells the same stories over and over again and he's always the fucking center of attention in the stories or I, I don't know, there's stuff like that. And it just occurred to me that, you know, when you're talking with someone, <clears throat> you're looking in their eyes and if you say something that makes them uncomfortable, you can sense it and then you modulate and maybe you back away from that subject. Um... Or you ask them if there's something, you know, or you pause and let them talk, let them respond. So you see what they're 
feeling and what you just said maybe was misunderstood or or maybe you realize that you've been talking too long and you know it's time for you to shut up and let other people talk or whatever there's this give and take it's an organic exchange that's happening and an energy exchange and um you know with the podcast when it's a Roma or or these intros, there's no one here. It's just me talking to this imagined you. And um, there's not an opportunity for that. There's not, I might say something that comes across to you as arrogant or ignorant or uncaring or flippant or you know they're pick your adjective and I just roll right past it because I don't feel the energy change I don't feel you respond I don't feel the trigger that tells me that oh maybe I said something that I need to go back and um, flesh that out a little bit and make sure that they understand that I don't mean you know, something that could have been interpreted that way. But anyway, this is just a long-winded way of saying I'm sorry if I sometimes say things that make you uncomfortable. I know I do. And I know sometimes I do it intentionally. You know, when I go off on whatever forbidden taboo language or um, some of the sexual things or some of the bodily function stuff, you know, like I feel like there is a value to that. There's a value to saying things that um, are actually harmless, but that make people uncomfortable. Like, uh, you know, like picking up a non-poisonous snake. It's like there's some, there's value in that and showing it to kids so that they won't be scared of all snakes and they won't go and kill snakes. And they realize that most snakes are harmless. That there's something about that that I feel like there's a um, a value in doing that sort of thing. But sometimes it's not intentional. Sometimes I say something that um, you know in my world, which is admittedly a pretty distorted world, uh, distorted from other people's perspectives. Of course, from my perspective, it's totally normal. But it's different from most worlds the kinds of things that my friends and I talk openly about uh, without giving it a second thought would make a lot of people really uncomfortable now presumably you're not that kind of person or you wouldn't be listening to this particular podcast but I, I recognize that people come to this podcast from other places from hearing me talk on other podcasts or seeing my books or whatever it is and um, that they don't know necessarily where I'm coming from and uh yeah so without that immediate feedback I can come across as an asshole so I'm sorry for that if I sometimes come across like an asshole and maybe I am an asshole sometimes I don't know all right that's enough of my expiation I'm gonna play you out with a song that I really like total change of mood here it's called fuzzy freaky it's by david byrne all amplified she's scandalized and i'm changing size who was it 
jump on it He's talking trash And he can't get back But he's built to last Who was it? Jump on it find anywhere on the planet and I'm in the living room of Michael whose last name I don't know how to pronounce Veneziano Veneziano so how did we meet we met because you listen to the podcast and you heard me talking about building a life raft in Colorado correct me if I'm wrong about this, this is my memory of it and you reached out and said hey I love what you're doing I work with trees. I've got lots of wood. If I can help you out, send you some wood. I'm down. And uh, unfortunately, we're not like at a stage in the process where I can really take advantage of your generosity. But we did hit you up for a couple of shells for the van. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and and man, you came through before we even met you. We were in your in your debt. Uh, because of these beautiful redwood shelves. So anyone who sees us on the road at any of these get-togethers, if you happen to get a van tour, check out Michael's shelves. Well, we officially met 
years before oh, that. Oh, that's right, at the party. At yeah. a party right. in the mission in San Francisco that we just stopped in late and bumped into you and Casilda. Did we talk for a while? We just, introduction. Not oh, We didn't really talk right, much. I just right. said, hey, I read your book. I like it. Uh, how you doing? And that was, right. that was it. Right. Well, I, I consider this more of an official meeting. Because that's a blur. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Those things are a blur. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you did a podcast with Andrew of Monkey Tooth Podcast. Yes. So I feel like I got to know you a bit through that. That was a really good conversation. Anyone yeah. who's left wanting to hear more from Michael can check out that. And um, But you're, you have worked in and around with trees for pretty much your whole life, right? When did you start yeah. with that? I was 17 years old when I got hired on to work as a cleanup guy underneath trees for the company that I eventually purchased yeah. in 1991. So it's 38 years I've been doing um, tree work. Right. And you you got that job just because you were looking for a summer job or something? or? Or Actually, did you pursue, no. were you particularly interested in trees or was it just like a job that then led to a life? No, I actually started earning money by pushing my lawnmower door to door and slowly built oh, up yeah. a lawn care yard maintenance business and then got a little pickup truck. And while I was stenciling the sign on the side of my pickup truck, some guy pulled up and said, hey, I need some help on this job around the corner. And I came and cleaned up underneath the trees, and then he hired me on doing it daily, and I just uh, immediately took to it and got really into the trees and learning how to climb trees. So it was just uh, happened into it. From Right. So do you feel, I mean, I guess where I'm going with all this is, I just read a book recently called The Overstory. Have you heard of that book? Mm -mm. Oh, really interesting book. Uh, and it's all about trees. Hmm. Um, it's about um, different stories of different people, but they're all connected through trees. Hmm. So there are like, you know, people sitting up in old growth redwoods trying to stop the logging companies from taking them. There's uh, there's stories about like the last chestnut tree, I think, in, in North America, because there was like there used to be chestnut trees everywhere. And then there was a blight. Mm. I might be getting the, the species wrong. But anyway, each part of the book sort of um, revolves around trees in some way. And you end up getting this feeling of trees as these mystical beings that experience time. I think there's a story about a scientist studying um, the, um, what do they call bristlecone pines that live to be, you know, 4,000 years old, the oldest living things on earth, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a sense of trees as, as mystical beings? Have you come to that or, or do you just feel like it's work? I, I think I always had that. And I, think it's probably hard for people to imagine someone loving and revering trees so much but also cutting them for a living like yeah. earning a living cutting trees often for their health but sometimes to remove them because they are damaging a house or they're dangerous or whatever reason but you know I've cut down 
thousands and thousands of trees in my life, but that doesn't mean I don't love them and feel a deep connection. Maybe you could call it a spiritual connection uh, that I have with the trees. And I feel like we have a good relationship. Yeah. Despite the fact that I'm a tree, I'm an arborist and a tree cutter. I don't find that so hard to imagine. I may have a few years ago, but recently, just two days ago, I was talking with a guy who's uh, in Santa Cruz who has been hunting his whole life. And he loves animals. Mm -hmm. And I've got a friend, Justin, in in Crestone um, who grew up on a ranch, animals everywhere. And I've never seen anyone so um, kind of sensitive to animals Mm. and and just has a natural affinity with everything from llamas to, you know, whatever animal it is. And yet he's a hunter. He's shot a lot of them. And on the right, he told me the story. I don't even want to recount it here. I keep trying to get him on the podcast, but he's shy. Mm. But um, yeah, he has this heartbreaking story about a wild horse in Texas that he really loved. And he used to play with and the horse would come up to him and like, take a carrot out of his mouth. This is a wild horse, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the owners of the ranch said, you gotta, you gotta, we're gonna have that horse killed. And he's like, nah. And he tried to talk him out of it, tried to find somewhere to have it relocated, couldn't find anywhere, and eventually said, let me do it. It was like, a, I don't know if you ever read Old Yeller. Yes. It's like this yes. animal has to go down. Mm. I'm going to do it with love, even though it's going to break my heart, you know? Yeah. I guess there's an element to that. I mean, I love trees so much. Even just climbing them still fills me with joy and working with them because now I'm retired from climbing, but I, as you know, work with the wood, salvaging the um, logs from urban tree work and, and drying the wood and making beautiful furniture out of it. So, yeah. yeah, well that, if you were a tree, isn't that what you'd want to happen to you? Like to become this table, you know, or become a house that people are growing up in and living in. And, you know, I, I was listening to someone the other day, I think he was talking about an instrument. He was talking about a musical instrument and he said, you know, wood never dies. Mm, mm. And I, at the time, it just went past me, but I keep thinking about it. Like, what did he mean? Did he mean that the resonance of this instrument, the sound that's created by this instrument, comes from the life that was lived by this mm, tree? Mm. Or, or is it still growing after it's been cut? Like, you know, a corpse, the fingernails keep growing? Hmm. I don't know exactly what he meant there. But. I mean, I guess, <clears throat> I guess, it feels like the tree is still there if you're touching in the wood and appreciating it, and loving it. I don't know how that feels for the tree or the spirit of the tree, but yeah. it seems like it's still here. Well, it is. I'm mean, physically, it's definitely here. Yeah. And there's that. I mean, I haven't worked with wood a lot, but there is that incredible moment when you've sanded a piece of beautiful wood and it's all dusty and you like clean it off and then you put that first Mm. oil on it you know and all the grain comes out in the color it's just so beautiful beautiful. yeah it's a the reveal the is that what it's called the reveal sure people call it different things but you know 
until that last stage, you don't know how amazing and beautiful and intricate and detailed all that grain is. And it's a, it's a, it's a nice experience. And it's, and the grain is the, you can almost read the grain as the history of the tree as like a tough year and a good year. And, you know, a difficult year where you grew a lot. Mm. You ever think about what your grain would be like if someone <laughs> sliced mm. your arm off? What Gee. would the, how would the years register? You know? Yeah, I, d- I never thought about that, but um, I think they would be tight grain, the hard years. <laughs> you're, you're a hardwood tree. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but so yeah, if you were a tree, what tree would you be? Hmm. Well, they talk about this, you know, climbers are either oak men or uke men. The uke men are eucalyptus men that climb giant trees, use big chainsaws and do huge work. And the oak man is the guy that goes up in the tree with his Japanese pruning saw and his snippers and details out the, I'm the type A, climb the big tree with the big chainsaw Hmm. guy. So I'm a uke man. You're a yuk man in terms of your work. Yeah. But, but as far as if, if I were but a your tree. your character. Mm. Like your, because you said you, because like, eucalyptus is a fast growing tree, mm, right? Yeah. So it's not tight rings. Mm. I never thought about that. And also, what eucalyptus is invasive. And doesn't it kind of fuck up the trees around it? It depletes the soil and sucks up all the water. You don't seem like that kind of guy. No, that's true. If I were a tree, I wouldn't be a eucalyptus tree. Uh, I would probably be some kind of uh, copper beech tree or some kind of uh, more decorative. I don't. I didn't. I didn't really thought about it. I, don't, I might be a. I might be a rogue sprout coming out of the crack of a sidewalk somewhere. I think exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought about it either. Actually. What kind of tree would you, I've thought about animals, you know, you'd be an Eagle or, you know, would you be a predator? And I mean, I, you've known this for years, I'm sure, but I just learned recently that Aspen trees are all clones. So what you see as a tree is not an individual being, they're all connected by the root system. Mm, mm-hmm. So a whole grove, the grove is actually is the, the entity. Organism. Yeah. The organism. Yeah. 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 Although, from what I've been hearing uh, and reading, that's kind of true of all forests. Even different trees of different species are interacting in ways that we're not aware of. There's this whole thing about how when a tree is is suffering, is sick or something, the other trees will divert nutrients to it to its mm. roots to help it survive, like a a cooperative thing across mm-hmm. species with trees. I've read that as well, which is amazing because I'm not even sure if the roots themselves are genetically connected, but there's also the fungal network exactly. that connects yeah. the two. And yeah. clearly there's a lot more to it than we can understand about that yeah. relationship and that consciousness. Do you feel a sense of grief when you have to take a tree down? I uh, I don't. Uh, I sort of kind of have an internal conversation with the tree and just, I don't know, just say, hey, we're doing this. And I mean, I just get the sense that in this area where I work, before we came here, there were rolling hills with little strips of oaks and bays in the creek areas, but mostly just grass. So this is an urban forest that we've largely 
planted ourselves and whether a tree gets to live its complete life cycle or, you know, seven eighths of his life cycle, I don't really feel any sense of loss over that, but I do still kind of check in with the tree and in some kind of nonverbal way, just work it out. Right. I, I, I do that. And a lot of times the tree will whip me in the face a few times while we're doing it to say, you know, remember me, I'm here. (laughs) Didn't go down without a fight. So, so when you say you climb trees for a long time, are you climbing up the branches like the way a kid climbs a tree or you, you've got ropes and slings and pulleys and all that? Well, I did climb a lot of trees just as a kid for fun. But when I began doing it professionally, I used all the ropes and harnesses for the safety aspect of it. And I, you know, still to this day when I climb, I use all the ropes and, you know, do it safely. Do you do like rock climbing or anything? I don't, but mostly, I mean, I have, but the physical effort of climbing trees takes so much out of me that on my weekends and when I have time off, I don't tend to do the same kind of strenuous Mm. activity because it just wears me out for doing what I'm going to do during the week. So (laughs) I'd rather, you know, do something that uses some different muscles and kayaking or hiking or something. Do you have any like kind of height issues, your fear of heights? No, I don't. I don't. I like it Mm. higher and, you know, it's more exciting for me. I like the the danger aspect of it. Yeah. Is it dangerous? Have have you had any like mishaps? Uh, I did injure myself. I tore a ligament in my ligament in my knee, but I'd never, I've almost killed myself on two occasions, uh, just doing questionable things and, uh, just getting a little lucky, but I've never had a catastrophic uh, problem you know, when I was climbing trees and I and did it for so long, it is a dangerous job in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's one of the most dangerous jobs. Tree work and roofing are the highest local trades. They workman's compensation insurance rate is through the roof. Mm. And, and a lot of people get injured doing that work. So I guess I consider myself lucky, especially because I'm an inherent risk taker. I really am. I'm not careful. I'm a gung ho go for it kind of personality. Yeah, but you're alive after doing this for so long, so you must be uh you must be careful. I mean, are those things in other words are those things necessarily uh here I'm going to put this down so uh, cuz we're when we touch this table that we've it, been talking about, you can hear it through the mics. Um you know, my uncle's a pilot, and he, and he has this. He says there are two kinds of pilots. Uh, what, what is it? Careful and dead, basically. I think there's a more clever way of saying it. But like, if you're an old pilot, you've you're careful, hmm. even if you're doing risky things. You're doing them with thought and care. I mean, I, I'm not proud to admit the fact that I have not been very careful throughout my career. And I think it's somewhat lucky that I haven't had any serious problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was two occasions where I probably should have, um, really hurt myself badly. What happened? Well, when you're removing a big tree, 
and you're cutting down the trunk, you can take it in little pieces or you can take big sections. And when I'm taking big sections, I rappel from the top of the tree down 15 or 20 feet. And then I rope in with my flip line, the spurs in the side of the tree, make a notch and fell the rest of the tree. Well, one time I did that and I forgot to take my high line out of the top of the so I was rappelling down from a high point on the tree that I was trying to cut. And literally, and still I was still to tied it. to the piece I was trying to cut. And I was pushing on it and pushing on it. And it wouldn't go over. And I finally took a break. And then I looked up and I realized the reason that it didn't fall over is because I was still tied into it. And my weight was keeping it from falling over. So I just... And if it had fallen... That, you know... You'd be tied to a 2,000 pound log that was I was tied to... You know, and who knows what happened? Maybe the rope would have broke. Maybe the harness would have broke. Maybe my flip line would have broke. But I would have been seriously injured from yeah. that. And the other time, I was just trying to get up a tree for the first time where you do have to free climb. And I, the tree was covered with ivy, so I was climbing up the ivy. And the entire sleeve of ivy separated from the tree. And I, I literally pulled off the tree and was sort of hanging in midair, but the ivy was so strong that it didn't break. So I was able to climb back down the ivy and get back onto the tree. So those were scary moments for yeah. me. You know, and I suppose I could have slingshotted a high line up that ivy tree and tied in and climbed up that way, but I just, you know, I can climb this tree. I only get up this thing. You guys just stay down there. I'll get the line up in the tree. So. Mm. Just hubris. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to climb trees a lot when I was a kid. And sometimes I'll see a tree and that that recognition of like, that's a good climbing tree. Like the branches are spaced right and I could get up really high in that. That kind of like 12-year-old excitement kicks in. Uh, I climbed a couple trees in Colorado this last winter, like not high. Uh, but high enough to feel it. And uh, it's such great exercise. It's your whole body, mm. you know? And it, I, I mean, I don't know if this is just, you know, projection or whatever, but, you know, being a primate, there's something about being in a tree that's comforting and mm. natural and just kind of like, yeah, you know, just feels right. I've loved doing it since little kid i've loved being in the trees and i'm sure there's some you know element of that that comes from our evolution yeah you ever tempted to like make a tree house like a little cabin and live in it uh, you know i've i haven't uh mostly because i've seen so many tree houses and had to remove tree houses and seen how bad they are for the tree they're really mm. not that good for the tree i mean you can install a tree house in a way that doesn't really harm the tree but um i see all these people that build these amazing tree houses and then they never really use them again so i just you know yeah i don't think I'll, i don't know maybe i'll build one for my daughter at some point but uh just uh it, only if it's going to get a lot of real use to it yeah 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 there's a, a guy up in uh, columbia river gorge uh, I forget his name right now, but he's friends with Lloyd Kahn, who you and I were talking mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. earlier. We're going to go see later. Um, and he built like a a really beautiful, I think it's like it's several different 
buildings that are connected by floating walkways, mm. you know, and uh, very uh, conscious of not hurting the tree. Like no, nothing's drilled into the tree or nailed mm. into it. It's all like a sleeve that can grow as the trunk grows. Mm. And um, I forget his name. He's got, he wrote a book. Uh, he's one of the first Vanthropology guys, I think. I don't know. People listening to this are shouting his name. Um, but it's he's got a book about like really nice tree houses mm-hmm. and cabins that people have built. And they're not even necessarily integrated structurally to the tree. They're just up at that height, you know. Yeah, that's better for the tree. Yeah. yeah. I was talking to this woman a couple of days ago in Santa Cruz, uh, the last episode I recorded, who was in Madagascar um, doing research on the animals that live in the canopy of trees there. And so every night she went, I think she said 80 to 100 feet up with a headlamp and like counted how many salamanders and lizards and all these different mm. things, snakes that are up there. Yeah, it's crazy. What's what's the highest you've been, do you think, in a tree? Oh, we get pretty big trees in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I've probably been up about 140 feet doing um, eucalyptus trees. They, they're one of the tallest here. Mm. Um and usually we do those really big ones with cranes and heavy equipment to 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 get the pieces of wood down. But um, one I did above the Claremont Hotel in the Oakland Hills that was a big tree that arched over the house. And it's a little bit like a fishing pole. You climb the top and you cut that end piece and the whole tree sort of bounces you up and down and around. And... So uh, no matter how tall a tree is, if you're on a tree that's springing around like that, it's uh, scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you know who Paul Stamets is? Yes. Have you heard his story about being up in the tree? Yes. We just watched that fantastic fungi documentary and he talks about climbing the tree and the thunderstorm and Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We talked earlier about psychedelics. Does that tie into this at all? You said, if I mean, is it cool to talk about this? Yeah, because um, you had a really unusual relationship with psychedelics, mm, mm-hmm. and f- if I'm remembering right, your relationship with psychedelics ended the time your relationship with trees began. That's absolutely true. Yeah, um, growing up in Berkeley with hippie mom and surrounding members of the tribe uh i was exposed to lsd at a younger age than most people and and loved it so i did a lot of uh psychedelics but stopped doing drugs when i got into trees because of the safety aspect of it um but i don't know that there was any relationship with it i I've always loved trees and loved psychedelics and I just stopped doing psychedelics and other drugs just so I could think more clearly while, you know, operating a chainsaw hundred feet above the ground and, you know, <laughs> delicate things and tripping. people below that I didn't want to yeah. drop a branch on. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's why. Have you ever tripped in a tree? I never have. I've sat wow. underneath redwoods staring up into the branches, and that is amazing. Yeah. You know, just being in the presence of those giant conscious beings, uh, I feel felt real connection with. But no, I, 
you know, just want to chill when I'm in that zone and absorb the energy. I not, I'm not like Paul. I'm going to climb a tree. And he did a gigantic bag of mushrooms. He yeah. probably did like 10 grams or something yeah. or some. <laughs> That's probably too much. That's a crazy story. Yeah. For people who haven't heard it, I, I know he told the story on Rogan's podcast at some point. Um, and that fantastic fungi is, uh, he tells it again, it, it, and he had a stutter. And then that experience, the Cured stutter him. was gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, it's interesting because it could be, you know, you've got this convergence of psychedelics, the tree, and the storm. Right. You know, it could be any one of those things or the three of them in concert that created that event. And the first time I heard the story, I thought it, it was all about psychedelic. It was all about mushrooms, but it isn't really all about mushrooms. It's about these different forces of nature all kind of coming together at the same time. Right. All the different energy because the trees are just energy in a more solid form than the storm and your body and I think you're just in harmony with all of those things when you're in that altered state. You yeah. Know, that's uh, that for people that haven't ever done them, you can't describe that feeling. It's just like being part of the entire universe all in one place. And the swaying of the tree was like, yeah, he could have, he could have reacted to it like, you know, someone i don't know like riding an animal like riding a horse you're afraid of versus riding the horse and moving with the horse in mm. a way that you become part of it you mm. know yeah yeah it's it's very useful for that so you and i i mean we don't know each other well we've just met uh in person but yesterday you were showing me around this place you have down in Oakland. It's a city block with like, what, 30 different businesses working in there? 35 makers and artists and food makers and, and craft people all working in the same block and doing our best to share resources and raw materials and equipment and even just physical help. Sometimes somebody's like, hey, you guys want to come help me move this? object from here to over here and we all rally and and so kind of a symbiotic symbiotic little community of, of right. people that are working together not unlike a forest right not unlike what we were talking about earlier these different species helping each other interacting and mutually beneficial ways it's i was thinking yesterday it's like you guys have created an ecosystem you know, because like you're doing all this woodwork there. So you've got all the wood. Then there's the sake makers over here who, I don't know, were they using wood chips or something as part of their process or some other? Mostly just beams for their press oh, right. and yeah. like art on the walls and cutting boards to display their products. But yeah, I mean, it's an intentional community. And when people want to rent space, we sort of pick and choose based on who would fit in well with that group and who would add a different element to it so we can have a diverse uh, uh, you know reflect a diverse group of people so it's um in other words right now we probably got six or seven woodworkers if someone wanted to rent some more space we wouldn't rent to another woodworker we might right. rent to someone doing glass blowing or someone doing some other type of 
craft, but it's generally centered around people making things. And there's an element of um, low income assistance for people doing things, but don't have enough money to really get their own business going and start it up. So we sort of help incubate the right people into that community based more on how they would fit in than whether or not they can pay the rent on time every month. Right. So it's almost like a permaculture approach to business. Yeah, I guess I would say that. And it's also a community. So you're not sort of working in isolation. You're working around other people that are just there, even if it's just for the social element or literally assistance or like we give wood chip to these people making tree oil soap and right. we, you know, they put it through their distiller or their extractor. And then they throw the chips into the soil pile that we mix with food scraps from the restaurant and we put in the garden beds and there's this whole cyclical, um, usage of the space and the resources. It, and it's in, it's in like an urban part of Oakland and there's this, biological uh synergy happening there it's it's fucking awesome it's one of the most the coolest things i've ever seen uh did it happen uh, you said it's an intentional community did did someone sit down and say i want to do this and that or did it just sort of come together in such a way then you realized what was happening and continue down that road well it the it was founded by a man who does amazing Japanese joinery, traditional Japanese home building. And his concern was never money. His concern was actually putting together a group of the right people. So it was very deliberate and intentional. And for, for his partners that invested in the property, they probably would have just wanted high paying tenants, but he just wanted the right people. And in fact, I used to just cut trees and bring the logs over that um, he would use for his construction projects. And we just got to be friends through that process. And when he retired, he said, hey, do you want to take over running this sawmill? And, and you don't have to pay me unless you can make money at it. So he really did cultivate this community just based on the vision. And he had the luxury not to have to worry about whether... Um, you know, he had to keep the lights on and pay the bills. So I think it was a very beautiful thing that mm-hmm. he did. And, and, and I hope to carry it on as he slowly retiring and getting out of the, no longer coming down to the compound and working anymore. Right. And as he withdraws from it, is that going to change the financial pressure on everybody? Well, his partners actually want to get out too, and they want to sell and they want to get their investment out. So the new owner coming in will probably want to add a little more intention to the revenue, but they also have seen how it works and they love how it's been designed and they want to preserve that. So they, Mm -hmm. they're committing to not raising the rents uh, mm. and you know, we'll add other areas and build out other areas to rent out that might, you know, rent for market rate or closer to market rate. So clearly the person taking over will have to make something, some return on the investment, but 
I really think we can do it without sacrificing that special quality that, um, that only doing it, you know, without there being a sole profit motive can afford. It really does make me think about regenerative agriculture. You know, how, like, it's not monocrop, right? Like a normal city block is, is either one monocrop, it's like one factory, one, you know, warehouse, whatever, mm. or it's a few um, that aren't integrated. They're not working off each other, taking advantage of the proximity to one another. They're just totally separate, you know, properties. But the way you guys are, there's so much going on there and it's so integrated that maybe the the like revenue created would be less than uh, in a good year on a monocrop. But I imagine that your whole project is much more resilient. So when there's an economic shock when the you know credit or interest rates go up or things that would affect those monocrop businesses could wipe them out you know like a blight or something to keep with the metaphor you guys are going to be all right because you have so many different things happening someone's always going to be in a good year and someone else is in a bad year or different stages of the development of the business you're not making much money because you're just starting out whereas this other place is an established business with established clientele. It just feels like it's much more resilient and balanced. Well, that's true, but it's also um, in an area of West Oakland that's gentrifying very quickly and property values are raising very quickly. So there'll always be renters. So the mm -hmm. business itself won't ever have a problem meeting its financial obligations. But the resilient part of it, I think, comes from the community aspect, for instance, one of our gardeners that just tends the day-to-day -day aquaponic crops and the garden beds had left her car on the street and it got hit and run and she didn't have much money but all of the people in the collective just chipped in and helped her get her car fixed and so you know working in that close proximity you get to be friends with people and the community ends up being more resilient as a whole than everybody having their individual you know, focus. Right. Right. Do you ever think like this is a model for the post <laughs> post capitalist or post COVID or post apocalyptic? There, there's something about it that just feels like it's in the future somehow. I mean, it's almost like a modern commercial version of how we used to live in hunter-gatherer tribes. I mean, yeah. instead of just living and surviving and just getting enough food to eat, these are a whole bunch of businesses that are surviving better because of their yeah. unique relationship with one another. And we promote each other's businesses and the energy that's created by all of them in that same spot brings a lot of energy and new customers that are there for one thing, but they see this other guy sewing tent equipment over here and this guy over here is, you know, making, you know, some kind of objects out of metal. And there's just, you know, there's a synergy in that space being, you know, so populated with interesting things that yeah. it just brings more energy to it. And it must be nicer to go to work, you know, because you're not just going and your little thing and doing your little thing. You're you're like, whoa, what's happening with the sake today? What's that? So let's shout out, if, if, if you don't mind, like some of the people who are working there. Let's spread the word. 
So I know there's that amazing soaps that- uh, Yeah, Juniper Ridge, which is Juniper actually Ridge. a huge company. They sell their products in Whole Foods and a bunch of other places. They make amazing soaps and lotions and incense and perfumes. And they come to our job site with their brush chipper and they grind up the pine and the fir and the cypress and they distill out the oils to make these products. So, so you is, can vouch for the fact that this is no bullshit. This is actually made from the trees that you guys have cut down and processed. Absolutely. You see it on the ground level happening. And it's a perfect example of the symbiosis between businesses because mm. then after the oils have been extracted from the chips, they get into the compost pile, they get mixed up and blended with the biochar, yeah, I never showed you when we were down there. There's a whole biochar and um, uh, organic fertilizer area where we're blending all kinds of liquids and fermenting and making live fertilizer. So huh. these all sort of tie in together because then we're putting those in the garden beds and growing the food and people are buying the food and it's being put on the pizza because there's amazing... You know, June's Pizza's pizza oven down there, and everybody's coming for lunch. So, Are you supplying the wood for the pizza oven? I'm not. They, uh. they use a very special oak for that oh, and okay. uh, not supply. <laughs> but you've got the aquaponics happening, uh, which itself is like a microcosm of what you're doing with the whole city block, right? Like the, the fish shit goes into the water, which feeds the plants, and the plants feed the other. You know, it's like yeah. it's all a cycle within this much larger cycle. So you've got, what's the sake company? That's Den Sake. Den Sake, which is now like a awesome. renowned, amazing sake. Uh, everybody that comes and tastes it loves it. And they're getting write-ups in all the trade magazines for their... And they don't use the natural resources that are on site, but they we help one another. And my business is right next door to there. So whenever the truck comes to unload their rice, I. You lend them my forklift and, you right. know, and they bring me some sake and we have a great symbiosis there. Yeah. So there's Iron Grain, which is a beautiful architectural metal fabrication shop. There's, um, you know, somebody making snacks out of crickets and they raise the crickets right. in yeah. a greenhouse on top of the shipping container that somebody's making right. hard cider in. And, right. um, Wasn't there like organic dog food? We're developing a, an organic pet feed process where we use food scraps and black soldier fly larvae to break down the food and mix in with right. the, you know, creates a protein for the pet feed. And so this is food scraps coming from the restaurant? The restaurant, that's right. Now this is all on one city block, people. This that's is right. all like an but, organism. But there are other businesses nearby, like Hodo Soy is just down the street, so they bring some of their spent soy shell casings or whatever and the brewer down the street brings hops over and and we're not really soil experts it's just anytime somebody has something organic we throw it in the pile and stir it up with the you know the, 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 the scoop and yeah. mix it with some of this some of that and you know eventually grind it up and sift it and put it in the bed and it seems to work fine yeah. so yeah. <laughs> you know well, and they're garden they're like gardens you're growing vegetables and that's right were there fruit trees i don't, I don't remember if there's there's a few fruit trees but they're not like they're just incidental to all the other trees that are planted around the property right. they're not we're not growing fruit there for per se right right 
Yeah. So it, I mean, I don't know if, is that a model that you've seen elsewhere or is this just a, a unique situation as far as you know? Well, I've had people come and say that there are people trying to do this and we're actually doing it where there haven't been other, and I'm sure there's other successful models of this. Maybe, um, I think in that one city block, we have so many small businesses, that's probably unique. But I do think it's a good model for, for, for community shared, you know, just sharing is just makes everybody stronger and more resilient. So I think it's a great model. And I, and I, and I, rather than make somebody upset that their business didn't get mentioned, I should just mention the website of oh, the yeah. site, which good. is O2AA, O2, like oxygen, like oxygen with the letter, the number two with the number two. Right. Yeah. And then AA stands for artisans aggregate. So O2AA.com has a pretty comprehensive list of the businesses, but also descriptions of how we're doing it and why we're doing it. And, and you know, what our goals are for the future with, um, we're actually going to all power labs, which is a, bur- a business base in Berkeley, they take wood chips and they make these palletized power plants where you put wood chips in one end and, you know, they generate electricity. They got a grant from California to build a big power plant, which they've decided to locate on our property. And just burning the wood chips is going to power the entire city block. So we're like experimenting with alternative forms of uh, renewable energy. And we have all the byproduct. I mean, we're cutting wood every day. And Sometimes having to, you know, pay to dispose of the dumpsters of the scraps and cutoffs and sawdust and whatnot. So, um, so if we can use some of that to generate electricity and as another model for, you know, alternative uses of the byproducts, but also generating energy and generating biochar is the waste product from that. It sort of really ties into our, our business model. You know what I was just thinking as you were describing that this would be an awesome thing for a graduate student to do doctoral research on, Hmm. to look at, to look at what you guys are doing and to, to think about what businesses integrate most smoothly and profitably, right? Mm. Cause you know, you're talking about the wood chips are being used in this process over there in that business and their, their, uh, byproduct is useful to this business. So it's almost as if you could look at it from a gardening perspective, you mm-hmm. know, like I was just reading something this morning, I think about how Indians always planted corn and beans and something else together. And those three plants interact in a way that benefits Mm. all three of them so there's like a natural symbiosis between these particular plants whereas if you added you know some other plant it might compete for you know different soil constituencies or whatever so i wonder if there's i mean it would be such an interesting thing to read and it would be so useful to people who are looking to do this because you know, there, there. I'm sure there are examples of businesses that occupy the same space, and they would just not have any use for one another. Mm, yeah, you know what I mean. Or they'd be competing. Like one needs a lot of power, and you know, you don't want another one that needs a lot of electrical power because then you got to put in more infrastructure. You know, whereas you with the saws, you're using a lot of power, but the sake guys don't really need much power. But mm, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I mean, you're really talking a about study of it. 
like you said earlier, a permaculture model of the businesses to find out which ones are really the most effective and efficient to have next to each other and sharing the resources. And yeah, we're trying to do that in probably a less focused way. And and there's, I think there's a sort of whimsical element about it because of the personalities involved. I mean, somebody may have a perfect business that fits in, but they may be an asshole. So, you know, you want to pick who you, because it's a community at the end of the day. It's just, I think there's more benefit to just being around, you know, at the end of the day when we all knock off, we crack open a couple of beers and play backgammon or cards and, you know, before heading home. And so, um, uh, there's real, the, my favorite part about it is just the community aspect about it. We're going to work and we're working alongside a bunch of people who we really like. Yeah. How do you handle that? Cause that, I mean, that's we're, what we're talking about is kind of like a, a business commune seat situation somehow, right? It's intentional community, but in, instead of families, it's businesses. How do you, how do you handle conflicts? Well, yeah, there are, there, there's never going to be full harmony. Like somebody might feel the business next door is, blowing too much sawdust on their business, which is what (laughs) sat with me about sometimes. Um, but we work through it. And, and I think the people that don't really gravitate towards that style of connection eventually just move on and somebody else takes over their space. That's more in line with that. But, you know, we don't have any mechanism for giving someone the boot that we really don't feel ended up meshing with our community. We just, you know, we just keep going and hope that they integrate or, you know, or somebody else takes over the space that, uh, if they're not that happy in that area anymore and that, and that happens. So we generally end up with most of the people that we want. And of course there's a few people that just aren't really going to buy into that kumbaya. So are they, I mean, do you find our, cause the thing you always read, you know, Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins and all this, the, um, what do they call it? The selfish infiltrator that you can't have a community based upon cooperation and, and, you know, generosity because some selfish person will always come along and take advantage of that to their benefit and thereby destroy the whole system. Um, Do you find that that happens or are there just sort of natural mechanisms by which people you know, you said those sorts of people generally end up moving on. You don't need to ask them to leave. They just kind of feel like they're not, this isn't their scene. I feel like there's enough people uh, that really love this concept of sharing that when somebody comes along and is really in it from themselves, they're sort of almost, I don't want to say ostracized, but maybe... They're, they're sort of self-separated from the community and the community, uh, uh, it's almost self-selecting in that way. I right. think uh, somebody comes along and it's not on the right vibe, then everybody recognizes that and, and doesn't work towards, you know, helping them out if they really need it. They just say, if you're not part of this group, we're not, you're not part of the group. That's, you know. It's like an immune response. Yeah, maybe a little bit like that. I mean, there's no actual mechanism for getting them out because we're not kicking people out if they don't quite buy into our vision. But people that aren't really buying into the vision, 
tend to move on. People just move on anyway. But, you know, people that we've had such long time tenants there when people get in there, most of the time they just want to stay because it's yeah. a really fun place to work. Yeah. And we have all this great food right on site, like yeah. a little food court where you can get, you know, lunches and sandwiches and pizza and Japanese food. We have a restaurant. And the fucking basil for the pizza is growing in the pizzeria, <laughs> yeah. like right next to the, <laughs> the table you're sitting at. I, Which is so cool. It's, it's so just, cool. Pick yeah. the basil and put it on the pizza and hand the guy the plate. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a really nice thing. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 awesome, dude. You said something last night that, I mean, I don't know if this will open up a whole other world of conversation or if this just sort of fits right into what you're saying. But last night you, we were talking about some other stuff and you said something like, I'm in love with the love. Yeah, I, I I thought I'm, about that after we went to bed. It's like that really sums up a lot of your life. I thrive on the helping people and people helping. I mean, I don't ask for a lot of help, but I'm in a position to help a lot of people. And I love being generous. And I and I really thrive on that, you know, feeling that we're doing this together. And I, I call it love. I just, you know, try to approach it that way. And um, I feel like that comes across. And so that opens doors, even though I'm not doing it to open doors, it like, wow, this person connected me with that person. And this opportunity came because we were just caring about one another. So that's a model for everybody in any aspect of their life. I think that just works out, just lead lead with love. Yeah, I agree. I think there you can't imagine the doors that open when you orient yourself toward helping other people rather than getting what you think you need it it it's enigmatic in the sense that when your focus moves from yourself suddenly you're richer than you ever would have been if you were focused on getting more for yourself. It's, it's a weird, yeah. It's not like, Hey, if I behave this way, other good stuff will happen to me. It's just, this is how I like behaving. And wow, the byproduct of that is other amazing people come into your life and, and because they recognize you as one of them. You're, Oh, you're like us. Let us help you out because you're one of us. There's a almost like a tribal recognition I agree with that 100%. Yeah. And that's, I, we were talking about Burning Man. You milled all the wood. Co- coincidentally, you guys milled all the wood for the temple the only year I went to Burning Man. That's right. The 2017 temple, we milled all the lumber for that. And then uh, we didn't, we helped with the build when it was in Oakland, but we flew out to the playa that year, which is something we never do. And it was just so hot that we were just there for a few days. We saw the temple burn and we got out. But we did have a marriage ceremony in front of the temple uh, that year, which was our pre-marriage to our actual legal marriage. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh I'll show you the pictures. I didn't didn't mention that. But we have... (laughs) Yeah, the temple. Did you know you were milling wood for the temple? Or was it Absolutely. You knew? Yeah. Okay, it wasn't going to be the man. You knew what it was. And in fact, we we didn't do it for profit. We just milled it at what it cost me to get you know all that wood processed with my employees and and all the all that labor. We just did it as like a break even thing. Um, I couldn't donate all the wood because it was just an enormous amount of milling work. But uh, 
but we weren't doing it for profit. We just did right. it. And because the temple's just my favorite part of Burning Man. Tell, tell people who haven't been to Burning Man, there's the man and there's the temple. And they're very different. Okay, so I might not be the best spokesperson for this subject, but I do love Burning Man uh, for that reason. Uh, the man is the symbol of Burning Man. So they build a giant wooden man and they burn it in effigy. Uh, and it is some sort of cathartic release uh, associated with that, but also more of a celebration. Whereas the temple is a place where you go to express and get things off your chest that you've been holding on to, whether it's pain or, or love or something you've been keeping it locked inside and you write it on the temple or maybe put meaningful objects into the temple. And the ceremony is when it burns is like you're releasing all this energy or you're absorbing it or you're accepting it or there's some kind of energy movement that's associated with it. And I think anybody that goes into the temple before it burns and starts reading what's on those walls, I mean, I just sob uncontrollably yeah. when I read some of this stuff. It's so touching and beautiful and sometimes very painful. And, um, you know, I've gone in there with my own pain from childhood and helped relieve myself of some of that, that bad energy by just bringing it out onto the table and putting it out there and, and, and burning it. Yeah. And so, um, it's to me the most meaningful part of that experience is is seeing all of that energy and love and and pain and forgiveness there's so much forgiveness in there that um that it really uh it resonates for me so so deeply is forgiveness something that's been central to your development well, yeah, I mean, my father, who was absentee and overtly non-nurturing and, um, and uh, borrowed money from me when I was a kid and never repaid me back and also said that, um, he said, oh, it looks like you're the child that's going to be able to support me when I, when I get old and can't work anymore. And it was just weird having an absentee father look at me like I'm going to be the one supporting him. And I, and I definitely had a lot of anger about feeling abandoned and a lot of my recklessness and probably why I did so well with tree work was just, I just didn't care. And I was risk taking climbing and just doing as many crazy things as I could. So yeah, forgiving him for that was really, really helpful for me. And, um, and in some ways I look back on that lack of nurturing and attribute my drive to wanting to prove that I'm worthy and that I, I'm, I shouldn't have been abandoned. I, 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 I'm, I'm a good person and I'm a hardworking person. And so on one side it was very painful, but the, on the other side, it was very motiv motivating in a way that ended up providing a lot of happiness and love and security for my family. So it's a, definitely a double-edged sword, but, uh, but I did forgive my father at the temple and I feel like it was, it really helped me 
it really helped release some of the inner pain and anger that I had from doing that. And, how, I, and, I, and it's that, not completely gone. It's right. still there. But it's, and, and how did it manifest? Like, how did you go there with the intention? Like, this is what I want to do this year or tonight? Ooh, that was in maybe 2007 or 8, I think. And that's harder for me to remember. But I definitely decided to do it. And he was still alive at the time, but he was purposefully driving me away with his overt racism that he knew made me feel uncomfortable. So I just decided that as appreciative I am for having been brought into this world, which I guess in some way I'm maybe supposed to give him credit for, I just decided that I needed to release that and, and just um, forgive him. But that didn't mean I wanted to cultivate a relationship with him. I just wanted to release my life from that energy. And um, hmm. that's the best way I can describe it. And I don't know that it was that um, well thought out. I just thought this is something that's weighing heavily on me and I want to get it out there and process it. And so... Yeah. It's interesting how... Like when you're in that kind of situation where you're in a relationship that's not helpful, not nurturing, not healthy, whatever. As long as you're still angry, you're still in that relationship, right? Like you can't leave without, without saying thank you somehow. You, you can't walk out. You're still trapped in it until you forgive. Yeah, forgive. It, it, it releases you from the power that that experience had over you. And because... He wasn't upset about anything. He was just doing whatever he wanted to do, and he couldn't care less. So it was only an overlay of pain on my life that I was experiencing. So releasing it just made life better, just took some of that away. Yeah. Some of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way, but it's definitely... I had someone... Uh, you know, I do these uh, video romas for listeners every month. And the last one, there was a, a question that was really uh, touching. And, and I'm still thinking about it. It was a guy who said, like, how do you learn to love yourself? Hmm. And uh, he said, like, I'm really hard on myself. Hmm. And sometimes I... I, it, it even gets to the point where I think I'm being hard on myself about being hard on myself. Mm. You know what I mean? And in thinking about it, I, I talked about you have to forgive yourself, right? Which is fucking hard. Mm. Because mm. You, you and I were talking about this last night, all this imposter syndrome that we all feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? You feel <laughs> it because you didn't go through college or whatever. I feel it because I have a PhD and don't know half as much as some people think that means I know. And, you know, like everybody's got it. Mm. Like, do you have any insights for somebody like that? I mean, because like you were hard on yourself. Yes. I think I'm still very driven and hard on myself because, yeah, I feel like, okay, I was abandoned by my father, but my mother was an example of an incredibly strong and hardworking woman. So I need to honor that energy and what she sacrificed for us. And so I push and I work and I'm going to just succeed. And that's a hard energy to, 
to release. I don't really, I haven't really fully released it yet. I'm still learning how to do it. Um, so and what would it look like to release that? Are you with probably there- just not feeling like by taking the day off and relaxing that I'm neglecting something that I could be doing, you uh-huh. know, and really spending more, even more quality time. I'm finally at the point in my life when I can spend quality time with my family, but I am still very driven. So I'm trying to balance those two things. And I'm trying to like say to myself, you probably have enough now that you don't need to keep forcing it. And so, okay, we'll take the day off and go hiking and, uh, you know, a couple of days off and go here or go on a vacation to, down to Costa Rica or something. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm giving myself permission to do that now more, th- more than before. And, yeah. and it's, it's still tugging at me. You know, I got to work. I got to get this thing done. And my wife is so good about it. She's like, no, you did everything. You're good. You can just be here. Yeah. You know, we're sitting and watching TV or something and the light starts to flicker. And she's like, you don't have to fix that right now. Like, oh, oh, I got I to fix that light. I know where the extra dimmer is. It's in the garage. The screwdriver's in the pantry. Uh-huh. I can I can do that in a commercial break. I can fix that. Calm down. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. We can, can wait. Well, at a certain point, like, I mean, I don't know if this is even helpful or just spinning around in the same circle, but there, there must be a recognition of like, I'm actually of more service to her by being calm than I am by jumping up and fixing that light like this. Cause it makes her nervous to have me jumping around all the time. And that's probably a good measure of how to live is, you know, the harmony in the family relationship instead of my obsessive compulsive need to fix things or work more or get more done. So it's, it's, it's really actually helped me get through that. Just having such a beautiful, loving family so close that I really do enjoy spending my free time with. I don't feel as distracted by work when I'm present with them. And, and so for that reason, uh, having a family has been very helpful and healing for me and also yeah. being being the father that I never had is incredibly cathartic and helpful right. for that right yeah and you and you I mean it's not just your family I, I'm sure there are like re- emanating circles of people around you who love you and appreciate you because you are this source of good feeling and assistance and you know all kinds of wealth I mean, you didn't even know me and you were offering to send me truckloads of lumber, <laughs> you know, well, J- maybe just, I just because you liked, I mean, I remember your email. You're like, I really like this project you guys are talking about building a laugh, uh, life raft mm. and I want to help. And yeah. it's like, fuck, the world is great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it would, it, and, and I, I, I hope to be donating truckloads of wood when you figure out what you want to build (laughs) well i mean and it quickly from our perspective it quickly went from you know yeah we'd love some wood but how about if you come and build a house here (laughs) we want you we don't want your wood man (laughs) yeah and i'm i'm 
very seriously mulling over that uh, <laughs> You don't like possibility. snow. I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that in a way, what we're trying to do in Crestown, and, and I know you recognize this right away, but um, you know what we're trying to do there is kind of what you're doing here. It's where, you know, we've got our buddy Oliver, the mechanic, and Cheryl, who raises chickens, and a microbiologist. And, you know, we've got all these different people of different skills who all love taking care of each other that is that's what really appeals to me about it almost yeah. like a amish barn raising yeah, kind of vibe exactly. let's just all help each other and if our skills complement that's even better yeah and it, it takes something that other people call work and it becomes a fucking party it's fun what else you would, would you rather do? You would go to a barn raising even if you had nothing to do with the barn because we're all eating and drinking and yeah. working together. And that is a lot of fun. Yeah. And you watch something amazing happen. Yeah. You know, like, holy shit. Like, look at that. There, yesterday there wasn't a barn. Today there's a barn. Wow. I mean, it's one of the things I actually do love about Burning Man is that for the three or four months before when you're building an art project or an art car or something, you're doing it with all your friends and you're getting together and you're dancing to music. Yeah. and welding and grinding and hammering and cutting your finger and burning your elbow and like but yeah. it's all amazing these are the experiences that you know enrich your life and it's not work it's yeah. what you're doing for fun yeah. it's that part of it and then of course you get out there and you know there's a week of complete debauchery if that's what you're into or meditative bliss if that's what you're into but i feel like the journey is so much a part of the entire experience or maybe even more of that because it's it takes up you know more time and you're spending more of your time doing it and it's all fun yeah it's all enjoyable time spent with friends well listen your wife just came home and i i, I feel like i'm stealing you from your beautiful family here <laughs> borrowing you for a minute so i'm gonna let you go but no i feel problem. like i i feel like you're you're yeah you probably don't think of yourself this way but i think you're a teacher uh, and hmm. teaching some very valuable things. Well, if any of the stuff we've learned from this community experiment helps other people, then that's a great thing. And, um, and I feel like uh, the intention is just trying to work more cooperatively with one another rather than isolating ourselves, which we do so much in our homes. We don't talk to our, I mean, we talk to our neighbors, but a lot of people just live and they don't talk to their neighbors and work in a cubicle and don't talk to the people nearby. And I think, you know, we survive these challenges together. And so the more things we can do in that model, the better off we are. Yeah. yeah. And I learned, I, I mean, I helped, help me articulate that listening to your podcast. So I want to express my own appreciation for that being one of the many things that I've uh, absorbed through, through those wise words. Thanks, man. Best thing about this podcast is it brings people like you into my world. And vice versa. Thanks, brother. Thank you. That's a beautiful man right there. Uh, don't forget to check out the website, uh, Ponderosa Millworks, which we didn't mention. And also uh, the other websites, which we did mention for the uh, overall look at what they're doing there in Oakland. It's It's awesome. I don't think I've ever been excited about business as I was walking around that place and just seeing how they've set up a business that replicates nature. 
in some fascinating, beautiful way. Um, yeah, be sure to check that out. All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I know there are a lot of awesome fucking podcasts out there in the world. A lot of audio books, a lot of amazing things that you could be listening to. And I'm very grateful that uh, you're choosing to listen to this sometimes. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Those of you out there driving trucks and painting walls and working in the garden and cooking dinner and whatever else you're doing in America, Canada, Australia, and elsewhere. Sending you a lot of love. Hope things are okay for you. And uh, if they're not, I hope they get better soon. Here's Mom and Carsey. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone It's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms 
would dance into the ground.